The cardinal truth emerging from these inquiries is that of the extreme isolation of the solar system. A skiff in the midst of a vast unfurrowed ocean is not more utterly alone. The Interplanetary Podcast. The exploration of space for the benefit of all mankind. Your hosts here in London, Matthew Russell and Jamie Franklin. Oh yeah, baby, Agnes. Agnes Mary Clark, the astronomer and writer of the Victorian era. That is a hell of a quote, isn't it? We both love that last line, don't we? That is, it's beautiful. She's got plenty of quote. I love that word, skiff. Do you think that maybe that could be my new nickname? Yeah. Oi, skiffy, (laughs) buy us a pint. I'd love that. Yeah, well, you are a skiff in the midst of Brighton. Nah, people know me here. I'm more of a ocean liner. (laughs) (laughs) So, Matt, straight off the bat, Mm -hmm. we have a very exciting happy birthday, don't we? Happy birthday, Monsieur Buzzicus Aldrinicus. That's his Latin name. It's only Buzz's birthday. Happy birthday, the one and only Buzz Aldrin. 89th birthday. 89. Damn. Also, yeah, the day after, on January the 21st, remember when we spoke about Miss Sam on Podcast 52? I do. The little female rhesus monkey blasted into space by little Joe 1B. Yes, I remember. Yeah, yeah, that's the anniversary of that. (laughs) Let's not talk about our animals in space, one. I still get nightmares of that episode. (laughs) And of course, it's the and on the same day, it's the year anniversary since New Zealand had its first orbital launch, and Rocket Lab had its first launch with an electric pump-fed engine and uh, released the glorious Humanity Star. Brilliant scenes. Which re-entered the Earth's atmosphere in March. Thank you, one and all. That doesn't seem like a year ago, does it? It really doesn't. Since I was moaning about Humanity Stars spinning around up in the atmosphere. Oh, I know. But you know what I'm going to say, Matt? I'm going to say New Zealand mm. is great. I've never been, but I've I've never been. You know what I'm trying to do? I'm trying to wangle a free trip to New Zealand. I mean, if anyone in the New Zealand space industry is listening, um, maybe you want us to go over and, uh, you know, do some interviews. Well, maybe we should uh, email Bob Richards and see if he can invite us down to watch the Moon Express launch on on the Now you're talking. That would be really cool, wouldn't it? I mean, not only would that be cool, I've also heard that their pies are very tasty. Mm. Apparently, Matt, you can stop and get some petrol uh, mm-hmm. from the, the local petrol stations, and they serve these pies. You know, not like the junk food we have here, but proper pies. Do their pies ever go into space? Yeah, <laughs> that's a good question. There's been some pretty amazing news stories this week. Well, go on. And I, let's face it, we are quite excited about the interview that we have today. We are very so excited. So we, we, we won't bother on too much because we, we yeah. um, in, in unbelievably enjoyed the interview that we did and with Helen I'm Sharman. hoping that she might become a regular guest. That was the most exciting thing at the end, wasn't it? Couldn't believe it. She said, do you, want, do you want me to come back and do this again? And uh, and so we were blown away. So, yeah, please do not adjust your sets. Keep listening. Keep listening. And if you've got any questions, yeah. there's a very good chance that we can pose those questions to Absolutely. Uh, Britain's first astronaut. Just ask us and we can pass it on. It's the kind of power mm. we've got, isn't it, Matt? 
Yeah, it is. <laughs> and with great power comes great responsibility. It really does. So let's not muck up. Now, Matt, that phrase that you just said sounds like something that might be in this comedy that we've read about <laughs> yeah. on Netflix coming soon with Steve Carell from the American version of The Office and Anchorman, etc. going to be in Space Force. Now, this I can't wait to see. It's by a lot of the people from The Office. The American Office are in it, and I love The American Office. It's, it's it is really great. Good. It's not as good as the English one, but it's great. It is great. It's different. It is different. But it, the UK office is, is perfect. Oh, yeah. Apparently, Steve Carell, this might be the, the highest paid actor of any TV series. So that obviously, it's going to be, it's not going to be a rubbish comedy. So, Space Force. Well, I hope it doesn't come to, I hope it comes soon now that they've teased us with it. But what a yeah. fantastic Mickey take uh, for <laughs> President Trump. Um, okay. I'm, I'm assuming the the premise is, is kind of no one really knows what they're doing because they're not quite sure what they're supposed to be doing. Of course. Because it's a kind of whim of – it's the whim of Trump. Yeah. I quite like that as a book title, The Whim of Trump. The Whim. Yeah. I could think of a different title, mm. but I won't say it. There's been a very interesting poll – that ESA re released this week. Mm. Europeans have been quizzed, 5,000 of them, from UK, France, Germany, Italy, and Spain, the uh, most populous parts of Europe. Yes. Uh, 5,000 people have been quizzed about what they thought about space. And, and here are some of the results. Most people agreed that the important uses of space are a better understanding of the universe, nice. Earth observation yeah. to keep track of climate change and stuff, and to help the utility of life, you know, with helping with transport and communications and things like that. Well, you know, that's Mobile good phones and GPS. But uh, they had doubts about the effectiveness of using space for space safety, you know, okay. warding off asteroids and stuff. But they, they thought it was still very important. Right. ESA were very disappointed with this one. Only four out of ten of the people asked felt well-informed about European space activities. Oh. There's a pretty easy cure for that one. There is. Can you recommend a podcast that they can listen to, Matt, weekly? They should listen to the Interplanetary Podcast. I tell you Weekly what, putting the ace back into space. They would get all the information and various ramblings that they needed mm -hmm. to know. So, yeah, 83% knew about ESA, but only 37% of people knew really what it was yeah that's a little bit of a shame i mean there's there's still yeah. a job to be done in our major news sources bbc's definitely got better it seems like every week there's a space uh you know story on the front page of the website um mm. but it could be it could be better yeah east of themselves have only recently started to blow their trumpet yeah like the nasa website is really really brilliant yeah, and of course you see people walking around in nasa merch all the time in your coffee shop or everywhere you do anything you know, and that's in europe you know everyone in europe is wearing nasa merch rather than esa merch we've got some esa merch including yeah, we definitely what, have Matt, matt's merch. very still very jealous that when we went to esa that he didn't and i did buy an esa umbrella You've got that wrong. I have an ESA umbrella and oh. I walk around Guildford with it all the time. Oh, shit. We both shit. bought one. Yeah. Oh, wait, hang on a minute. You know what I'm thinking of? I'm thinking of the anoraks. <laughs> yeah, I bought an ESA anorak as well. <laughs> Did you? <laughs> yeah. Oh. We both bought an ESA anorak and an ESA umbrella. Matt, I'm, I'm, there might have been I'm, something. I'm so sorry. You're forgetting that I've got ESA. Wait, wait. It must have space been. Space transportation wait, caps. Maybe it was the toilet roll. It might be. 
<laughs> Might have been. Yeah, it was the toilet roll. I've actually caught myself wearing far too much ESA merch. <laughs> <laughs> definitely, definitely look like a spy. It's like wearing double denim. I had double ESA oh, on. Don't, don't knock double denim, the Canadian tuxedo. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. First gig I went to at Wembley Arena, Matt, going slightly off topic, mm-hmm. was Brian Adams. And everyone was double denim. He was wearing triple denim. What, denim waistcoat? No, denim shirt, denim trousers, and denim jacket. And I thought, you know what? If the groover from Vancouver can do it, so can I. And you have ever since. I mean, I've never <laughs> I've never kissed a girl, but I haven't looked back. <laughs> It's like it's like you got a little bit bored of my uh, article there, Jamie. No, no, I'm sorry. Let's go back to it. It was it was really interesting. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No. Uh, well, the upshot was no. This is this is a. I, I find this interesting that when you ask people how much do you reckon per head space is costing a European citizen, if they have a guess, they sort of go with, "Well, it cost me cost per person two hundred pounds each a year." Right. right. That's what they reckon. But it's actually closer to £9 a year. Yeah, that's insane. The value. That's good value, isn't it? Very good. £9 a year. You know what? I'd give 10. I'd give £10 per year. (laughs) Well, it's it's more like €10. We we used to be giving like £7.50, but... Thanks to thanks to Brexit, it's not it's not so great anymore. Anyway, let's not talk about that. Right, no, let's move on. Ninety uh, percent, unlike Brexit, ninety percent were very positive about space activities and Europe's involvement in it. Well, that's great to hear. The future's important. bright. Uh, I would like to see more of those sort of questionnaires. See where the podcast fits in. Agreed. Maybe we maybe we should do one of our own. Oh, I think we should. What's, what are we waiting for? Now, you would think it was all going rosy in SpaceX, wouldn't you? Uh-oh. What's happened? Oh, well, after having a superb year of launches, everything going right, mm. we've got the Crew Dragon launches coming up, and it, everything just seems really good. However, they've shed 10% of the talented and hardworking members of its team. I paraphrase Gwen Shotwell there. Ten percent. Yeah, that's a lot. Yeah, it's a lot. Do isn't we know it? what that is in numbers? Oh, I don't know. It's, have they got like something like seven thousand people? So yeah, well, it's quite a lot, isn't it? We'll have to find out. But um, yeah, that's a shame. Yeah, so it looks like there's going to be a sort of slowdown this year of satellite launches. Hmm. But also, it could be, I suppose, something to do with the, things like Falcon Nine and, and Falcon Heavy. There's not so much development on. I those was going to say. I mean, they seem of, to have they've done kind of been done so much that maybe Musk has just gone. You know what? We just need to strip it back to two or three things that we can excel at. Don't need to do 500 launches a year, you know? Well, I guess they need to do the launches. I just I just think that, that there just aren't as many things needing to go up this year. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, it's just a slowdown. It's like, God, they'll be, you know, they're chomping at the bit to do the launches. They but, really are. Hey, not that I can see much competition for Falcon 9 arriving too soon. Worse still is for this other company called Tethers Unlimited. Oh, yeah, I read about that one. That's 20%, isn't it? Yeah, 20% of their staff. And the worst thing about that one, they're blaming the gov- this government shutdown. Is it still shut down? Yeah, it's still shut Ridiculous. down. Ridiculous. All arguing over a border wall. And it, and it means, yeah, that no one's getting paid. So this, this company, um, apparently it's all down to cash flow because NASA are unable to pay them for all their things like their CubeSat thrusters and stuff like that. Mm. And uh, and as a result, they're having to lay off staff in that. Isn't that, isn't that I'm not bad? happy about it. I'm going to write a letter. Yeah. 
Yeah, you should do. Write to your MP. So, Matt, because Matt, they have absolutely no jurisdiction. Well, they don't. <laughs> but I would like to know, Matt, what's happening in the world of mm-hmm. space telescopes? Oh, it's been space telescope madness in oh. the last week and a half. Talk to me. There was a bit of a wobble with Hubble. Uh-oh. Yeah, there's a camera on board called the Wide Field Camera 3. Oh, yeah. That was fitted about a decade ago. It was running along quite happily, and then suddenly the software went, oh, whoa, what are all these odd vo- voltages? And stuck itself into safe mode. Oh. The good news is it seems that the engineers are working a little workaround, and, and they're pretty confident they're going to get it online if they haven't already. So the old girl keeps going. Well, good luck, which is, team. Which is spectacular. However, on the Russian front, and this is this is this is really bad, really. They've got a space telescope called Spectre, okay, which is um, which flies about seven hundred times higher than Hubble. It's a different type of show off telescope. Yeah, it, well, it's it it measures radio sources. It, it's a different type of telescope, but it looks like. They've lost control of the actual satellite itself. The, the, the instruments, I think, were still working. All we hear is radio sauces. Radio sausage. <laughs> I don't know where you were. Don't know where you wanted to go with that. <laughs> Sorry, I just uh, just came into my head. I tell radio. I tell you what's new. Good is that yeah. It's 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 kaput. It's kaput. And oh. uh, uh, there's speculation. It's because they didn't harden the silicon for the for the processors. Oh. Didn't make them space radiation immune. That isn't so, good. So uh, yeah, so the radiation has built up, damaged the satellite, and uh, it no longer wants to communicate. Oh dear! Um, get this. This is a pretty amazing statistic. So because they've also lost their Mikhailo Limanzov hmm. satellite recently. That's it. The Russian space program has no operational space observatories. That's unheard of. That's pretty bad for the Ruskies. Come on, Russia, you can do it. Jamie, you must have loved this story oh, when it well, was breaking. I know what you're going to. I know what you're going to say, and and I did love it, and now I'm gutted, and I don't <laughs> know why I didn't think about it more because it's kind yeah. of it's kind of obvious. Yeah. What was going to yeah, happen? Didn't isn't it? There's a slight cruelness. There was a slight cruelness to this, wasn't it? It's like, look at our new baby. It's dead. I know. So this is the uh, this is the Changi Four, um, mm. with with growing its its plants and seeds uh, on the moon. So the cotton plant that sprouted in the bio experiment mm. uh, aboard the Changi Four didn't have a chance, Matt. As night fell no. and the temperatures plummeted too, have a guess. Minus 170? You bang on. You are bang on. <laughs> yes. And then temperatures so, during the day? 120? I tell you what, you are in the know. Because yeah. it's on the nose oh, again. Yeah. But so all of the bio experiments, the plants, the seeds, will decompose very slowly. They're in their sealed can. And the potatoes didn't sprout at all. The fruit flies were just just couldn't hatch. It's terrible. <laughs> so, state do you know, of affairs. <laughs> what I loved was the uh, the Chinese um, experimenters said that that fruit flies were a little bit lazy, so they lazy, uh, and that's why that lazy. I love and the that, idea and, and of their mum going. They're a lazy animal. It's ten in the morning. Oh, come on, get up. Like, nah. 
and I can't be bothered. And now they've missed their opportunity. Oh, They'll I'm teach gutted, them to be lazy. I, you won't. know, um, lovely Jake, our mate Jake, uh, put up on Twitter a picture, and he put moon farming. And then I was looking at the day three, day five, and day nine sprouting of the seed. I was thinking, oh my god, it's actually growing. But that's it. That's the. It's the first ever thing. The first plant ever to grow on the moon. This cotton plant, and it actually did it. I mean, the that potatoes is, that is cool. and that. What was that? What was that other one that I had real problem saying? Was the arib arabidiposis? Yeah, arabid arabidopsis arabidopsis. Arab arabidopsis. Yeah, arabidopsis. Uh, some kind of mustard seed thing was that didn't sprout, but the cotton plant did. That's that's. That's pretty exciting. That is actually pretty exciting. Isn't I mean, it? But yeah, it, they're all just yeah that it did. It's just that old problem of atmosphere, isn't it, Matt? Mm. And of course, there is some worry of, of course, biological contamination. But the Chinese assure us that it will all be trapped in the can. Well, I believe them. So, what's happening with uh, with old Delta Four? Well, we should we should have that really delayed Delta Four heavy with the reconnaissance satellite that is essentially a Hubble telescope that points down at the ground, okay. except vastly improved. Noted. But we but we don't know anything about it. So I was going to have uh, the space word of the week, furlough, because <laughs> it's, a, it's, it's a word I'd never heard before. Nor have I. But that's all you see at the moment about this um, shutdown of the American government. Yeah, because it means when you basically tell all your employees to go home uh, because of the economic conditions, and that's what's happening to all the NASA employers and everyone else, this a furlough. But I'm not going to have that as the space word of the week. No. I just thought that that was – it's, it's from the Dutch. Veloff, leave of absence. Um, uh, we're having orbital speed. Hurrah. Hurrah! You know and I know, and I'm sure the listeners know, that you have to get to a certain velocity – so that you go into orbit, i.e. fast enough that as you fall, the curve of the Earth is falling away from you as you're falling, right? Correct. Yeah, if you have like a fly orbiting the Earth, the fly's weight you can pretty much ignore, and therefore it's essentially the Earth isn't moving. But in actual reality, the Earth is, is orbiting the fly as well, and, that, and the centre of that movement will be almost at the centre of the Earth, of course. Yes. But Jupiter and the uh, Jupiter and the Sun, the barycenter, is actually slightly outside of the Sun's atmosphere. Yeah, because it's huge. So you could consider it a binary. Earth and the Moon, it's very, very close to the to the uh, surface of the Earth. So Earth and the Moon are almost a binary system, but we're not because the barycenter is actually underneath the under the surface. But yes. For all intents and purposes, as you said, if if it's if the if the object doesn't have much mass compared to the body, then the, this barycenter is right at the centre. So we can consider the speed to be relative to to the body itself, rather than having to take all that into consideration. Because that it. would be boring. Yeah. And um, Matt, how many uh, Earths could you fit inside Jupiter? It's one of those ones I can never remember, but it's massive. Its volume is that of about one thousand three hundred twenty-one Earths but is only 318 times as massive. Mm -hmm. I love looking at these stats. Why Why do I love it so much, Matt? I'm just about to hit you with a bunch of stats. Here we go. Right. So mean orbital speed. When, when people talk about orbital speed, they often are actually referring to the mean orbital speed because 
only if your orbit is circular will you be traveling at the same speed all the time. If you if you if you're in an ellipse, you'll have a periapsis mm-hmm. and a apoapsis. Periapsis means when you're nearest, and apoapsis mean when you're furthest away. So when you're getting really near, if when you're thinking about it, you get really fast. You go really fast, that's your maximum speed, and when you go far away, you slow down a little bit. But if you average it all out, you get your orbital speed. So here, do you want some do you want some stats? I love that. Uh, give me some stats. Okay. So the Earth is rotating at 1,040 miles per hour, right? So uh-huh. if you're standing on the equator, that's how tr- fast you're traveling relative to the sort of center of the Earth. Yes. Right. So obviously that's not an orbit. So if I, if I wanted to then f- be in orbit uh, at the surface of the Earth, so say fly a very fast jet plane – at <laughs> ten meters above the surface of the Earth, uh-huh. I would have I would have to go seventeen thousand six hundred eighty-four miles an hour. Damn! If you wanted to fly at the Kármán line, which is a hundred kilometers or sixty-seven miles, yes, sixty-two. Sorry, sixty-two miles up. Uh, if you wanted to be in orbit, you have to be traveling seventeen thousand five hundred forty-seven miles an hour. So not actually that much different than being right down quite low. Yeah. So you you have to be pelting it. And that is, of course, why it's so hard to get orbital. That's why you need an absolutely ludicrous vehicle to get orbital. It's not easy, Matt. The Mir space station that Helen Sharman was on board... She did. We'll hear more about that soon. ...flew at a distance of 200 miles or thereabout above the Earth's surface. So I calculate it was travelling at about 17,254 miles an hour. So still blooming fast. That is fast. So the ISS is about 50 miles higher than that. So that's just over 17,000 still. Hubble, 335 miles up. That's still just under 17,000 miles an hour. But geostationary orbit is quite an interesting one. It's not that fast at all. It's only... Well, geostationary orbit is 22,236 miles above the surface. It's so far away, isn't it? That's Geostationary far. orbit. And and it's uh yeah, it's a, has an orbital speed of only 6,878 miles an hour. So you don't have to get yeah, not too bad. Have to be going yeah, not too bad at all. And the moon, here we which go. Is orbiting this is the, the big Earth, one. Yeah, is traveling about 2,209 miles an hour relative to the barycenter of Earth. Because it's Obviously a quarter of a million miles away, correct? Yeah, two hundred fifty thousand miles away. Some he- some some good stats today. Those facts are worth remembering because uh, Helen Sharman mentions how fast you're going in Mir. Another stat worth remembering, Matt, is when I was I think seven years old, um, mm-hmm. I won a bouncy castle competition where you had to do the most bounces in a minute, and I did a hundred and one in sixty seconds. Oh wow! So, uh, you know, I don't know what you can do with that, but please keep it. Uh, it's worth mentioning, and we, we could bung in another couple of space words here. Go on. Um, yeah, that the, virtually all of these orbits that I've just been talking about are prograde or orbits, meaning oh, that yeah. when you start orbiting, you're orbiting in the same direction that the Earth is rotating. And, and the reason being, of course, it takes much less fuel because you're already going 1,040 miles an hour. Big time. 
So yeah, you, you, you di- it didn't take anywhere near the effort to uh, get you up, which is why the um, why the ESA's launch in launch facility in Karoo is so good because you're so near the equator, so you're getting that almost the full the full on uh, push up into orbit. I told you to stop mentioning Karoo. You make me jealous again. So uh, Helen Sharman, here we go, is the British chemist who became the first British astronaut and the first woman to visit the Mir space station in 1991. And she still remains in the top 10 youngest people ever in space. I think it's just incredible. And uh, what a story. And it it couldn't happen to a a nicer person. So here we go. Ecoute. The Interplanetary Podcast, putting the ace Back into space. So we're here with Helen Sharman, Britain's first astronaut, which is an absolute honour to have her here. Uh, Welcome to the show. Thank you very much indeed. So I'm going to kick off with a question uh, uh, about 2019, really. We've we've started thinking of 2019. A lot of us have come to the conclusion that 2019 is going to be the commercial uh, is where commercial space is really going to come of age. Have you got any thoughts about commercial space? Because we're really excited about it. Have you got any thoughts about uh, the economic return from commercial space uh, as opposed to the economic return that you might get from government-funded space? Ooh, well, wow, yes, I'm really excited about it as well, actually. I think this is really now the... We're right on this edge, aren't we, of making space so much more accessible for many, many people um, of all different types, and that includes the scientists sending up their experiments into microgravity, but for all sorts of people who just want to travel into space and they have that experience. And we are so close, and it's tantalisingly close at the moment. Um, I think, yes, can we put numbers on it? I don't think we can really, can we, at the moment? Um, But the good thing is it's not just one company. There's many different companies that are um, sort of not so much fighting each other, but they've kind of got their own bit of a niche, but nonetheless, they all want to be first. So they're all um, gearing up, and and it's it's great, so they can play each other off. NASA can then contract to two or three of them without knowing that um, they're putting all their eggs in one basket. And then that will release NASA funding and the rest of the world's space agency funding, you could argue as well, to be doing other things, other sort of the, the stuff that perhaps isn't quite ready for commercialisation just yet. Are those the sort of things that you're more excited about? Because presumably you're talking about the more science aspect uh, of, of space of science. space utilisation. Yeah, science in one respect, but also the other things like landing on the other side of the moon, dare I say it, in 2019. That's the other really yeah. mega, mega thing, isn't it? And, the, and and what that leads us to. I mean, the actual moon itself, perhaps a lot of scientists have said, you know, scientifically speaking, it's quite dull. Um, but what that leads us to, to, I mean, we ha- to know that we can do that and the technology, the, the, the infrastructure required to allow us to communicate with the spacecraft on the other side of the moon. I mean, that's and the, the whole setup um, and the organisation. And for a country like China to do it, of course, that then the political aspect and the, the race is on kind of thing. And I think that's the other side of this. So commercialisation will allow NASA to then um, take part in what must surely be now a new space race. Absolutely. Yeah. In fact, that actually does lead on to uh, to, to one of the questions that we had. Um, so, yeah, you, we, what are what what in your view what are the sort of long term potential for a truly international lunar surface expedition so you've got europe us russia china possibly india as well uh not as a political question but as do you think that that uh, as a collaboration between nations 
it's it's better than say a healthy competitive environment uh, between nations. I think you probably need a little element of both if we're really going to do it a bit quicker. Um, and I, I don't honestly think if I mean, while I'd love China to be involved and collaborate nicely with everybody else, I don't think that they want to do that really. Um, I think China wants to show how it itself is capable of doing anything, um, and. It probably will, and it will allow other countries to come on board with its programs if we want. But I don't think that, um, honestly, will China really collaborate with us? Would be lovely. It would be lovely, but I think that's highly unlikely. Sadly, um, we may well get um, many, many other countries. You mentioned India. Mm. Um, they've, of course, long been interested in space in in general, um, in general terms, but also satellites, and they've they've had an astronaut many, many years ago. So um, yes, I think. The, Collaboration, absolutely. A bit of competition will not just make it exciting, but it it will it will sort of put the, put the foot on the gas a little bit more. To, <laughs> yeah. to use a very mechanical, earthbound uh, frame of, of figure of speech. But I think um, whether we we do actually need to go to the surface of the moon. I mean, I, I was I've been convinced for a few years by um, various people. Um, mostly American, I have to say, um, that actually we don't need to go to the surface of the moon. We need to go into some sort of lunar orbit, possibly, or um, some other place in space, which will allow us then to get further to Mars, um, get humans to Mars. Um, we don't need to actually build a lunar base. Now, we can learn lots of things on the moon, but I would argue that actually we can learn them elsewhere. Let's go and, and do that exciting stuff. Um, let, let's just... Let's just go for it. Let's not go back to the moon, first of all, do unless you, we absolutely have to. Do you think that, you mentioned China earlier, do you think that they were mentioning about the amount of resources and materials that are on the moon that could potentially help with them, also mentioning so, uh, solar power? Do you think that that's why everyone's saying the next boots will be Chinese boots on the moon because they want to harvest the moon for, for their gain? Wouldn't surprise me one bit. Um, I think it's, it's, it's uh, much at the moment. China's just investing, it's, and China's investing in pretty much everything: I mean, yeah. science, technology, um, engineering, um, sending its students over to the UK. Huge investment, really, in terms of financial terms. Um, but eventually, those students will be going back to China um, and taking with them not just the knowledge, but the understanding of uh, perhaps the way of thinking, which has been different from the way that China has taught its students traditionally. So there's going to be, I think, um, give it 10, 15 years, and China will have a whole load of new academics, engineers, systems people, um, actually, and scientists, um, working in quite a different way mm. so yes um yes it wouldn't surprise me at all if china china wants to put boots on the moon not just to explore but to actually ju just just to go there just to to, to see what it can do and to yeah. show it's a what show it of force do. and power absolutely. yeah absolutely do you think that maybe russia will actually start leaning over towards the chinese side in terms of who they who they're partnering up with in terms in terms of lunar I think Russia Ideas. would probably um, do a bit of both. So Russia's had its fingers burnt a bit by cooperating with China. So um, it, uh, if you go around the Chinese um, astronaut um, centre, I suppose you call it, I don't know what, they actually, what the actual translation is, um, it's basically like a copy of what Star City is, um, but it's bigger. And the Russians will say it's bigger and it's better because it's all brand new. <laughs> um, uh, so pretty much, I mean, look, look at their, um, their spacesuits. Mm. Look, look at their... 
uh, their their spacecraft, spacecraft yeah, itself. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's yeah. it's not direct copies, but they're so similar. So yes, Russia thought it was um, it was selling a little bit, but of course now Russia understands that this is how the Chinese have always done things. Uh, traditionally, they will copy, and then they will do a sort of incremental increases in improvement. Um, on, on whatever has already been done before. So com that combined with the new idea of having their students and their future scientists and engineers in a more free thinking kind of way, which they can learn from coming and studying in, in not just in the UK, but in the States and other countries as well, then, uh, yeah, I think China's going to be a real force to reckon with. Yeah, I, I really like that idea of the paradigm shift of the way that they, they think, because in some ways they've got an advantage because of the way that they think. They do think very differently to us, don't they? And it's <laughs> and if, if they come over and, and also adopt the way that we think, it, it, it will accelerate things quite considerably <laughs> in terms of, of, of their ambitions. I mean, it has to. And I think so because of the huge investment and because of the way that their politics works in China, not that I really understand it in any depth, mm. but they can pretty much do what they like. It's not that they have to get voted in or out of, you know, out of office in the next four or five years as um, many Western governments do. So, um, that, yeah, they can they can continue to, um, to fund what they want and not fund all the rest of it. And we couldn't do that in the UK mm. and we wouldn't want to and wouldn't necessarily wouldn't, uh, advocate it, but it does mean that um, there's all of that investment going ahead. Um, and yeah, we've, um, if, if I think, I mean, NASA, of course, knew about it. We knew yeah. about that there was a, a that they had, China had launched this mission to the other side of the moon before Christmas. I think not launched in November, didn't it? Um, but we didn't quite know when it was going to land. Um, and so, of course, this is, we had all of this e excitement about um, Ultima oh. Thule from NASA <laughs> coming out because they weren't quite sure and they didn't want China because yeah. landing on the far side of the moon was bound to beat whatever yeah. um, NASA was going to say about just I mean, uh, they've only managed to go nine billion miles away. <laughs> <laughs> big deal. Yeah. It's huge, of well, course yeah, it is. Not just that, Osiris Rex as well. I mean, poor old Osiris Rex engineers, they must have gone, what yeah. about our story? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. it is. It's, it's, it, yeah. It eclipses everything, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, it really is. It's, it's been quite a big start to the year yeah. if you, we think of what's happened in the last kind of week and a half <laughs> already. Yeah. Yes, already. And yes, exactly. So well, mm. may it continue. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Now, you mentioned huge investment and that one it brought me on to a question about the ISS. Obviously, it being this huge laboratory in space, and people always talk about the expense that it costs to keep it there and run it. Now, we know your background in chemistry and science experiments, obviously. What would you say to the people who question the money it costs to keep something like that going? Well, wow. Yes, of course, it's expensive. Um, it's providing us with more understanding about how to operate in space in the future. Um, and it's one of those things that... Um, can be turned commercially as well. Yeah. So um, actually it's one of the good things that Trump has said, I think, is that he uh, ultimately, not necessarily in the next year or so, but I think it is a good idea that um, because we're not we're not sort of needing to do anything particularly new to get people into space. We've done that before and we can bring them back from space. I'm not saying that it's definitely sort of, it's an easy um, easy journey for the engineers or, or, or the astronauts themselves, but relatively speaking, you know, we've, we, we're quite good at that now. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, that, that's the kind of thing that can be turned commercially and um, and leave NASA and other space agencies to go on and do other stuff. Incredible. So, yeah. so that would lead on to something like the LOPG, the lunar the lunar gateway. What what are your thoughts on the on the lunar gateway in in terms of its uh, ability to generate maybe science because I know that that's a <laughs> well yes I mean, science will come from anything if we if we want it to won't it yeah. I mean we just yeah. anything new is going to bring us um, bring us science results um, the question is of course there's a limited amount of funding so yeah. where do you put your funds yeah. um, and I think um, we we what we need is a, 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 a 
good medium and long-term strategy that isn't um, everybody fighting each other. We want the, the um, space agencies who are going to collaborate to agree to collaborate um, so to know where their aims are. Are we going, is it you know, human exploration? And maybe there should be a little bit of that. Um, is it all human exploration? I would argue no, absolutely it shouldn't be all human. That's of course is part of it, but we need to be doing other stuff as well. We need to be learning the science. So it's a little bit like um, not spreading ourselves too thinly, but equally doing and uh, not doing one thing only so that we've got um, we've got we've got science coming back at us so that we can learn and can use the benefits of that for all sorts of different mm. things and we, we do on earth already and there's all sorts of um, you can talk about spin-offs but um, you know scientists will say well if we had that amount of money that was invested in that science research in space we could have done far more science on the earth and that is true mm. but it'd be different, different science, science. Yeah. Right. so yeah absolutely I mean it's, it, one question. This is a question that that, that David sent sent me. He thought it'd be quite a fun one. He um, with Russia, obviously they're they're very behind with their uh, their Federation uh, starship, their equivalent of Orion, and they was and so they're toying with the idea of pass, uh, sending people to the Lunar Gateway with with a Soyuz. And your mission, of course, is a very similar duration mission to uh, what would be a lunar mission of that type. And of course, you've been in a Soyuz. What, what, have you got any thoughts about that kind of doing that kind of mission to uh, to the to lunar orbit in a Soyuz? What would what do you think yeah, about that? Soyuz is um, Soyuz is, is reliable. I mean, it's it's a workhorse. It's um, as, a, as a rocket, but actually as a spacecraft, it's um, it's it's reliable. It's pretty basic. Um, uh, you know, there's no hot food or water, but you know, you could argue for a few days. Who needs that? <laughs> um, uh, we didn't. We was fine. Um, uh, yeah, and Soyuz can can survive the journey. Um, perhaps need a little bit more radiation protection. Um, we lived on Soyuz for two days, um, but only two days. And you know, when I closed my eyes, I could see little bright flashes every four seconds or so. Wow. Um, so there's, I wouldn't like to to live on Soyuz. Well, I'd, I'd, you'd need to do the sums on the radiation, but um, I wouldn't like to live on Soyuz for very long, let's say. So I think they might just need to have a little bit more radiation protection. That would be make certainly make astronauts feel a bit more comfortable mm. about what they were subjecting themselves to. But um, but yeah, otherwise, I mean, practically, it's 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 quite a reasonable, if a little bit cramped, um, place to be. You've got the orbital module. Um, as well as your sort of and the bit where you actually sit in, so there's room for three of you at a time to pretty much stretch out as long as you don't mind your feet going down through the the hatch. <laughs> um, so yes, yeah, so for a few days it's no problem. So yeah, so, so it would be a, a sort of feasible, it's quite a feasible, feasible development in the in they've, as they've, part yeah. Of they've the... they've uh, they'd, they'd need to make sure that they they put it on the right kind of rocket, of course, to get it there. And um, but the actual spacecraft itself. Yeah, it's, it's 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 quite a friendly little spacecraft, I suppose. It's um it's compact. Um, you can pretty much reach everything around you. <laughs> um, it 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 has its um I suppose it has its its. It's quirks. So the, you know, the the fact that it is in three sections, um, and and it's so it's coming back to Earth where the sort of the quirks happen. So sometimes the bolts don't separate properly. Um, you always want to make sure, of course, that you're coming coming in the right angle. Otherwise, you can spin, and that that's been problems in the past. Um, ballistic entries aren't particularly pleasant, so I've heard. I've never had to have, uh, sort of put up with one. But again, you know, it it's, it helps people survive through even through that. So. I think it was well-engineered. Uh, Korolev knew what he was doing. Yeah, absolutely <laughs> did. Now, here's one for you. One thing we ask all of our guests is, what's your favourite space fact or science fact that kind of, I mean, you, you've obviously dealt with students a lot with 
um, you know, your work at the college, et cetera, and your touring. But is there one fact that stays with you that blows people's minds when you tell them? Well, facts. Um. <laughs> <laughs> it's a tough one. There's a few. Facts are quite yeah, a question about. What's, what's an amazing fact? I mean, it depends really what where you're coming from. If you think about the speed people are travelling at, because we just we th we we think of astronauts as being weightless, and, and we feel weightless, of course, um, and we feel as though we're cons we're absolutely static. We're just floating in the middle of just some great big space. But of course, it's it's that the speed with which we're travelling around the Earth. And when you just translate that to you know that seventeen and a half thousand miles per hour on the Earth's surface, I think um, for people who aren't familiar with spaceflight and those kind of speeds. Um, and so when I tell people, well, you know, that means that you could basically commute to work in um, a second and a half or yeah. something. Yeah. And that's it starts to, it's the, the penny starts to drop about how how fast and we are actually travelling. And, and therefore, th then the implications of, well, you know, it's all right if you're, there's nothing in front of you. But what happens if you do hit something? Mm. Um, and then the... Um, uh, a picture I like to, to show actually people is um, a, a shuttle orbiter window that's been hit by a fleck of paint mm. at orbital velocity um, and you have this huge impact yeah. and of course, of course you know the, the actual the kinetic energy of a tiny fleck of paint something is with as little mass but because it's got huge velocity yeah. is, um, is, is high and so yeah that can the damage it creates to the outside of spacecraft I know Tim Peake will say that the outside of the ISS is just covered in, in pits and I know we have problems with um, uh, solar panels, the reduction in, um, in in the efficacy because of the, the damage just by, by I'll say bits bits of stuff, and it yeah. could be micrometeoroids, it could be something that's um, artificial, flecks of Space paint, junk. and so on. Yeah, yeah. I mean, junk is really big bits. If you get hit by a big bit, yeah, then you, you, you really trouble. worry. But yeah. I suppose a lot of let's say junk is probably travelling in the same direction that you right. are, so its relative speed to you was much reduced, fortunately. Yeah. Well, we saw a map of space, and it, I couldn't believe how much. Well, there yeah, is. I, I, yeah, I was in Damstadt in the in the in the in the junk control room where they sort of monitor it, and one of the things he said was that they were a little bit concerned about the uh, when we we're talking about commercial space and and the, these constellations of satellites going up. Is that something that you would worry about in terms of if you if you've got a company and it goes bust and it doesn't bother you know who actually looks after these one thousand satellites that are suddenly left? Yeah, I think it's a big problem with commercial spaceflight generally is that we need the legislation to to bring let's say health and safety in the widest possible sense of the meaning, including mm. what you've just mentioned about um, about uh, sort of constellations of satellites. Um, whether it's it's humans getting to ISS, um, we need to make sure that they're not going to be taking up toxic stuff in the air, in the a cooling fluid that they might join onto mm. the to ISS or whatever it might be. Um, so we need that kind of legislation to make people conform. And how do you make somebody conform when you could you, know, you could be some country in the, you know, the a, a, launching something from the middle of a jungle somewhere, um, how, how do, you, do you do that? Do we give the UN some teeth to actually um, police this? I mean, maybe that's how we have to do it. Mm. Um, uh, but that's the only way yeah. I can think of, really. But then the UN was never really set up. It was set up in a sort of collaborative yeah. way. Uh, um, well, if you would like to do it our way, that's very nice, but we can't force you. Mm. But I think we do need, uh, now we're operating and what we do um, increasingly affects the rest of the world. And we, we know already with our environment that what happens if you have a, a nuclear accident r halfway around the world, within hours it's affecting our own airspace. Mm. Um, 
all of the coal that's being burnt in certain countries, again, it affects everybody's airspace. Eventually, the ozone layer on uh, in Antarctica, you know, yeah. uh, it was our, it was Europe's and America's refrigerants. Mm, yeah. Um, <laughs> so yeah, it, 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 we can we cannot anymore just think that we're, we 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 can work respons- irresponsibly. So yeah. somehow the world has to has to fight that, um, and 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 you know and and act, act up and. Yeah, so I, sp- I guess in that sense, it's it's just a global problem rather than just a space problem. It's it's, it's like so. so it's it's part of a, a bigger picture of yeah. of global. <laughs> Did you feel like you were more aware of that? A lot of astronauts say when they come back, they're more aware of of Earth as one place. That there there aren't borders. You can't see the borders from from that high up. Are you in that camp as well? Um, you. <laughs> In in a way, um, so I mean, I've, I suppose I spoke to many people before I flew. People who had flown, mm. um, so I was kind of I suppose ready for that. Yeah. Uh, and, and it is absolutely true. You can I mean you can sort of see some borders between Canada and the US, for instance, because the way that the agriculture works is quite different. Right. Bigger fields in the US, so you can kind of see some some distinctions. Yeah. Um, and a lot of borders actually are geographical anyway. Yeah. Um, and so you kind of know where that mountain ridge is on one side right. is. Uh, yeah. But and certainly, often... no, certainly no guards. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. Right. But um, but no, it's 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 very much um, the fact that you as you orbit the Earth, of course, you go around very very quickly um, with sort of with a couple of blinks of the eye, you've gone over big big cities. Yeah. Um, and so yes, in that respect, how interconnected everything is. Um, what amazed me actually was looking out uh, one night and um, and seeing um, lightning flashes. Um, and it was obviously cloudy, which was typically <laughs> lightning where the clouds are. Um, so the lightning was happening within the clouds and it would I could sort of see a big burst of light and it would then illuminate a whole sort of patch of clouds. So I could sort of see the, the clouds uh, sort of, if you like, it's, it's almost like they're sort of ballooning with light and then it would diminish. Wow. But that one flash then set off or appeared to set off another flash of light two or three hundred kilometers away. So storms that we don't necessarily think are connected on Earth. Yeah. And then we, you get a sudden sort of, brrr of of lightning flashes within almost like on a continental scale. Wow. And I can't believe and that, that would that would happen sort of periodically and then, then there would be a bit of a, a calm patch and then brrr again. Yeah. Perhaps not quite as quickly as my <laughs> yeah. Yeah. my tongue rolling sort of represents there, but but certainly quite a quite quick flashes of lightning. And and that that's again the interconnectedness of what was of, of all of that. Incredible. Um it's it's yeah, we we're not alone. We we've we've got to cooperate more yeah. and more so. Um, and we've got to be nice to each other. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Easy said, though. I, mean, I, I suppose you didn't really need to go into space to to kind of have yeah. that have those feelings, really. I suppose. But. Well, living in Russia taught me a lot, actually. So when I lived there, um, it was Soviet Union times, end of the Soviet mm. Union times. Life was really hard for mm. many people there. Mm. For most people, um, they did not have stuff in the shops. Really, shops were empty, and it's it's hard for many people to even consider that. So this is well before communications of internet. Mm and mobile phones and so on, phone calls were difficult to make. Sometimes you just couldn't, the phones weren't working for days and days on mm-hmm. end. So there was nothing in the shops, but you couldn't make a phone call. They didn't have cars. Some people did, but it was very difficult to get hold of a car. If you did, you couldn't get hold of petrol half the time. Um, really, really difficult time. So what did they talk about? Well, they certainly didn't have adverts. <laughs> they didn't. Um, they didn't talk about the latest computer. They didn't have computers, but they didn't talk about the latest car or the glitzy clothes or what colour makeup they were going to be buying yeah. from the shops. Um, anything like that. What they talked about was each other. 
And they really were interested in themselves as people. So individual relationships and then communities, very much so. And I learned a huge amount from that. So I just come from sort of 1980s UK. It was all very sort of broad shoulder pads and um, <laughs> and cut and thrust and yeah. um, thinking that I had to join. I wanted, I thought I wanted at that time to, I was part of the rat race and it was all very exciting. And I realised that actually that's not what life's about. Mm. Um, so Russia taught me so much then. Now, when I now go back to Moscow, I find it very sad because they've got everything. You walk down the high street, I can't afford to shop in the, in the shops in central yeah. Moscow. It's all designer clothes and stuff. And the sad thing is that, the, that they, Russia seems to have almost forgotten what it taught me. Mm, yeah. um, so I, somehow in between the two, there must be a happy <laughs> medium, I'd like to yeah. think. Maybe we can all learn from each other a bit more. Yeah. That is a valuable lesson. Yeah, yeah. so yeah, just going to Russia at that Period. Yeah, that, that that's really interesting. Well, one of the things yeah. I was good. Do you still remember any Russian phrases? What was your? Do you, what springs to mind? <laughs> <laughs> one that uh, sprung to mind relatively recently. Not today. Actually, the, the today while we're actually recording here, um, it's um, quite chilly outside, um, but quite sunny. So I would say we've got some decent weather out there. But there's a lovely Russian phrase called "bez pagodi," which I probably haven't pronounced it very uh, very well. So uh, do ex uh, please excuse me, any Russian speakers who are listening. But um, "bez pagodi" means without weather ah. so basically there's no weather today and that's a fairly typical thing it's kind of it's not really doing anything it's cloudy because in the winter time yeah. in moscow it's always cloudy <laughs> yeah. you don't really see the sun um it's not snowing it's not raining it's not that cold it's not that warm it's just not really just, doing anything yeah. so it's like without weather so that was always like a nice that. one and without weather of course it's exactly what happened in space you don't get well forget yeah. about ah. solar, solar um solar wind and sun but we don't actually experience weather in certainly inside the sp spacecraft and that's one of the things that when i got back to earth i realized how much i'd missed yeah i'd missed the wind in my hair and the rain on my face yeah. um and it was only for eight days i'd been in space for but still now when i'm outside if it rains i haven't got a brolly i love it oh, it's great just to feel yeah, that yeah, splashing yeah. and it's actually happening to me so yes yeah, so i think that, that russian oh, phrase bias pagodi is a kind I will of remember a that. One for me actually yeah. that reminds me of that lovely clip in is it interstellar where the guy's having a hard time and someone puts a some it, headphones on him and it's just rain it's the sound of rain and we went to a mars nation event where we talking about mental health in space and what could you do for astronauts who maybe were missing their friends and family or missing weather and i know that tim peak had uh he was running a marathon and they said where do you want to run and he said the scottish highlands and so they went and did the video for him and uh that's amazing but yeah i was going to ask you about that but yeah missing weather that's of yes, course a big thing weather. well yeah it isn't and, and so tim's a, a big marathon runner and it's um uh, while um, i was in space we had um uh, videos of, of russian countryside so when we were using the um the, the exercise bike not that i really i had to use the exercise bike because i was only there for a short time yeah. but um um yeah they, they, it would be it's a nice thing so the psychologists say it's not just a question of of just helping you get through the exercise but actually it's to see green stuff right yeah and um, on a video or i actually took up a miniature lemon tree um for partly for an agricultural experiment but actually also as a psychological thing does it actually make the astronauts feel a bit nicer yeah, yeah, sure. a bit more a bit sure. more like 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 home of course the sad thing is we had so much stuff on board the Mir space station because we've been up there for quite a while um and you know typical sort of engineers scientists as well we don't like to throw things away it might just come in useful for something <laughs> so they've got all sorts of bits of old experiments and, and all sorts of stuff that of course it's taken so much energy to get into space you don't want to get rid of them 
unless you really know you're not going to need them again. Yeah. So there was so little space for this poor little lemon tree that I'd got because oh. I'd carefully got it. One of the first things I unpacked and I gave it to Musa who had been up there for six months. He said, here, look, wouldn't you like to have this up? And he said, well, where am I going to put this? <laughs> um, oh, we'll bung it over there, out of the way somewhere. Oh. <laughs> the psychologists were mortified. This, this, this sounds a little bit like Wally. In the, the seat where he has to sort of look after that little plant and he's trying to, <laughs> he's trying to find it. But was the there an element of that? Was there an element of you? Because I love, I've got a Japanese peace lily at home and I've had it for 15 years and I, I talk to this thing, I'm watering, you know. But is there an element of that where if you take a small plant into space that you want to, you want to nurture it like you would a pet or, you know, just it's something for you to, to look after, not just looking after yourself. And that must be good for your, for, for mental health. Yes, I think that's that's part of the psychology of it that, that it's something to to care for, sure. um, and it's not just um, it's it's not immediate. It's it is something that you you need to spend a long time, and you almost uh, hesitate to say, it, but perhaps build a relationship with your plants. Yeah, in, yeah, yeah, in yeah that of way. Yeah. And have a gin and tonic if you can get some uh, <laughs> slices going on. <laughs> with, with the, you, I, in your book, you 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 mentioned that Mir felt like well, like home to you. That you had actually you had a really strong feeling of of being at like an actual home and and was that was that to do with the, the the kind of enclosed space or was it to do with the camaraderie of the people around you what what, what actually do you think caused that really strong yeah, attachment to it partly it was that um we'd learned so much about it in the training so um it's almost like um you, it's like sort of seeing something in vr and then mm. you actually get there and it's just how you expected it. So in that respect, it was yes, it was it was all already quite well known to me when I got there. But yes, you're right. That camaraderie is lovely, and I think it's a home is a home because of the the feelings that you have in it, not not because of what it's got. Yeah. Um, and yes, I had I just I had such a fabulous time there. Um, the cosmonauts who were there, um, what I was doing, um, and and the. Just, just doing, doing new stuff with the experiments, looking out of the windows. If you didn't have windows, I, I wonder how much of a home it might have felt, because that was all part of it. It was that, and sort of the experience. Um, but yes, it just, I just had happy times there, I suppose. So yes, it felt like a really nice place to be. It, it, the, the view out the window, presumably, that's the view, the view of Earth, and and seeing this, because you describe it as massive. I, most, a, a lot of astronauts I've read. I'll, I'll describe it as tiny, but in, in your in your book you're saying how vast it is and that you felt really big. But with the the view out of the International Space Station is obviously the Earth. It, it, will it be different for the for the poor old astronauts that are in orbit around the Moon on the Lunar Gateway if they go and and they've just got the Moon as their view? Do you think do you think that will make it less homely, or do you think it will be all right as a view? No, I think uh, <laughs> no, I think it'll be much less pleasant as a view certainly. So um, not only is the Moon less interesting because of its colours, mm. but I think they looking back at the Earth, it's the people that I remembered certainly when I was orbiting the Earth, and that's what made the Earth. Feel also like home mm. um, and uh, I thought of the going over countries where I know family friends it's those people I thought about and I think it's that um, emotional connection with the planet which makes it feel so beautiful or partly and there's many reasons mm. I think why um, it sort of has this just this attraction to us but it's that yes that emotional connection with it um, and the fact that it is so physically beautiful um, the blues, those gorgeous blues of all, all the seas, the lakes around. Um, and why, why do we like blue? Is it because it's that particular wavelength of light? Our eyes are more susceptible to green. Mm. Um, but on the other hand, blue means life. Um, and yeah. is that is it because we know blue means life? Or somehow is blue 
beautiful. Mm. I personally happen to quite like the colour blue. I like <laughs> blue lights. I like blue fireworks. Quite rare, of course, in fireworks. I like um, I like blue flowers. I like at the end of the day when the UV tends to overtake quite a lot of the other light, um, and so the blue tends to be a bit more predominant. Um, so I quite like those those blue colours. But is that just me, or is that do we all like blue for different reasons? But yes, it's the blues um, and the brilliant white clouds so you get that that reflection of sunlight back to you in space and then of course the brown of the land so you get those different colors the the, the poor old moon's not really got a lot to offer <laughs> no, in that respect no, is it? it's not quite as good as it, it can't be up there well, actually, but on the other hand you know it, it, you know but i'm not saying it will would be amazing to look at the moon and to or keep on orbiting because mm. i mean the astronauts up there were still entranced by the moon mm. um it was just to go back to apollo 8 they when they got that view of the earth suddenly amazing wow that was something even more wasn't yeah. it yeah we got to interview Al Worden and that was a big oh, deal because yeah. uh yeah it's just hard to well yeah he, he, he's done issues. the deepest spacewalk hasn't he I think or yeah. whether he still holds that but it certainly was a pretty far out one <laughs> yeah, yeah. Really um was. yeah in, in fact that, that actually does lead on to another question one of uh, one of our listeners wrote in and said besides the earth uh, Dave Blazers, this is uh, besides the Earth. What is your favourite planetary body in the, or it may not even be in the solar system, but and why? Ooh, good one. Mm. Mm, interesting one, is that? I suppose it's things that we don't really know very much about, just because they're so 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 wild. I mean, um, Uranus has to be sort of up there. It's just mm. just to, we we really haven't got an awful lot of information about that planet. Um, and so I'd just like to find out more about it, I suppose. Um, but I think they're all interesting. Um, I, I like magnetism just as, just as an interesting concept to me. Yeah. Um, from my chemical knowledge and understanding about the rotation of um, electrons, which is really what gives us that attraction in the first place. But but then how that can be over such such large distances, even when we just think about you know, it's, it's just a little teeny weeny electron spinning around. Um, and, and yet you get the number of electrons and yet somehow the field is can be over many meters if you have a strong magnetic and then in space and how the um the, the earth's magnetic field of course protects us from um from solar radiation mm. and I, I love the idea the, the idea of that as well and how do, how is that really taking part in um in other um uh, in, in the, the rest of stuff that goes on in space what else is there that really is this i suppose part of this unifying theory uh, is magnetism somehow up there are we ignoring something we, yeah. we don't really include magnetism in our theories of space um mm. so i'd like to find out much more about that but yes where 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 planets have got magnetic fields i think that makes them quite interesting yeah i suppose that makes juno very interesting doesn't it because the, the magnetic fields of jupiter and the and might even be uh, metallic hydrogen all swirling around in the in, in the core that and stuff very it, complex yeah yeah <laughs> Yeah, really interesting. Talking of other planets, Mars. Now, SpaceX obviously doing their thing. Um, in 50 years, do you think that we will have had boots on Mars? Oh, definitely. And if so, what is the biggest challenge that comes with that? Definitely. I would say within 20 years, 25, 25, but certainly less than 30 years we'll have had boots on Mars, definitely. Oh, right. yeah. oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, they, they, yeah, the people will take risks, I think, because uh, we're, we're starting this new space race partly with the Chinese to thank for that, say, I would yeah, say. SpaceX uh, doesn't do it, China will. <laughs> yeah, so, uh, but yeah, we'll, we'll get there. And um, uh, big problems with radiation at the moment mm. and, and with food. Um, so two, um, just two, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but two, two big ones. Um, radiation, I would say possibly, I mean, there's new materials, but um, a lot of what's being developed nano-wise, nano that might help us, but we still haven't really got anything. Um, do we need to 
let, let the astronauts live underground, there's all of that. But yeah. then how do we make sure that we, they get there safely and in a fit state in order to create that underground habitat? Can we do that for them before they get there, possibly? Right. Um, and perhaps as we're getting better with robotics, which the Chinese are proving by landing on the other More side. More potato uh, plants. <laughs> well, this is the thing, isn't it? Can we grow food? And then there's um, a lot of pros. People hear different things. Is, is the, the soil toxic or is it not toxic? Mm. Um I'm sure we can get get work around that, um, um, but we, we we haven't managed to grow fruit and veg in space. Yeah. Um, now I think uh, it's a personal theory. I'm sure there are a lot of um, um, be very interesting to hear actually if anybody really knows. Um, but we, we, there's a, a we, we've we've grown fl flowers in space, and we can make tomatoes fruit hydroponically on earth so we can um, we can fertilize them artificially we can sort of, you know, we know how to dab them with paintbrushes even manually so we can do that um, we can get the the sort of nutrients to the roots and we know that it's not relying on gravity to get that up through through the plant because it's all capillary action so tomatoes we can manage to make as many tomatoes as we like on earth without needing soil and we can even provide them with artificial light so we don't mm. even need the sun so why can't we grow tomatoes in space we can grow grow the vegetables, we can take up potato plants and make the potatoes bigger. But we can't take up a potato plant and let it flower and create a potato root tuber mm. from brand new. And why not? So my personal theory is that it's something to do with um, the way that the um, the atmosphere, the air around the leaves actually circulates. Because of course you don't get convection in space. Right. You get convection on Earth, which means that um, you've got micro um, uh, sort of climates, if you like, around the leaves, but, but it's got this constant rotation, constant movement. And I just wonder if we're we're properly managing to get the ventilation to the plants so that we can actually, um, to actually the very, very surface. And we're talking here like molecules on surfaces. And I think it's that surface that perhaps we're not thinking of properly um, yet. So if you're listening, Elon, that's your next chapter. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Well, he, he actually, the very first thing he ever wanted to do was send a greenhouse to Mars, wasn't it? That was his. That was his but you see, on Mars, there's gravity, so you know it might not be so much a problem. Yeah. So we might be better off on Mars and uh, on the Moon. Maybe that's our place to try it yeah. out. Yeah. Well, I suppose, yeah. I mean, I wonder what the minimum gravity is. I guess this is the thing, yeah, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, maybe we just need some anything which will just give us a bit of circulation. What's um, that incredible film, Silent? Silent running. <laughs> yeah. Have you seen that? Not seen Where that. they it's take the greenhouse yeah. up into space. Yeah, it's amazing. A, it's a great sci-fi. Really one of the great sci-fi films. It's a good one. <laughs> We've got another question from one of our patrons, Bob Hodges, and he um, he he wants to know about the recent Soyuz abort. Where you, I'm assuming you, you, uh, that you watched it when you, when you saw that Soyuz abort, did you know exactly what was happening and what the uh, what the two Astro well, the astronaut and the cosmonaut went through, and and is it something that you trained for? And, and was your was your Soyuz configuration similar to theirs, or, or is there actually a difference between what you had and what they had? No, all very very similar still. Um, so the Russians will say, you know, it's worked before. Why did why invent it, reinvent it? <laughs> yeah. Do you want to be the first person to try something brand new? And I was like, well, and I used to ask yeah. quite often, and I um, and of course then I would say, nope, that's fine. If it was <laughs> fine for Yuri Gagarin, it's fine for me. Thank you very much. Um, but no, seriously, it's um, yeah, very similar still. Um, and yes, we trained for it. Um, in fact, the couple of the astronauts who um, used exactly the same kind of abort system in 1986, I'm trying to think now which, which one it was. Um, so it was um, Strekolov, Manikov and Strekolov, I think. Um, perhaps not Manikov, but Strekolov. 
Um, so there were two of them who mm. did the same kind of thing, but they 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 had to escape from a fire on the launch pad. Um, so they came to tell me how um, how you know, it's fine, it works. It's um, I'm to have confidence mm. in that, um, and and I did have confidence that it would work if necessary. Um, so yes, I didn't actually watch the latest one live, but I did see it um, a short time afterwards. Um, and it yes, it really you could sort of you, you could tell that it was it was to do with that separation of the booth, mm. so there was something going on there. Um, but yes, as soon as it had happened, um, I had reasonable confidence that they'd, they'd get back okay. Mm. Um, of course, the, their main problem was just having to hang around for a couple of hours until the rescue team arrived because they yeah. weren't quite in place. <laughs> yeah. Um, but but yeah, they were they were fine. Um, ballistic landing, but again, mm. that's that's happened on a new, number of occasions um, in the past and often goes unreported because it's yeah. not such a big deal, really. Yeah. Right. Um, people. You know, people like you would know, um, <laughs> yeah. but um, but a lot of people doesn't get hit the hit mm. main main news. Made so um, so yeah, but we just don't know. But yeah, it's it's, but, uh, it's not it's, it's 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 one of the backups, and it's yeah. it's there, and it's great, and we're we're very grateful for the fact that it's there, and we hope we never need to use it, but but we know it'll work. Yeah. So I mean, if yeah, so if you'd have been in that situation, presumably, would the first thought going through your head? not be about your safety, but, oh, no, this is my space mission kind of <laughs> scuppered. I think to start with, you think of, you, you, you're just getting on with it. You just need to, to, to you, you, you just go through the motions of what you've been trained to do. And that's mm. why the training is, it really is so good. So you've practiced it in the training. Instead of it being plan A, it's now plan B. And you just keep going with plan B. The thing is, with something like when and the landing and this particular abort, there's not a lot you've got to do. It's not like you're firing retro rockets and you've got to do calculations. Um, you've just got to brace yourself. So presumably, as soon as they um, uh, that they knew what was happening, um, and I think they worked it out pretty quickly when they realised that they were feeling weightless and they shouldn't have done. And it was yeah. um, um, they were then just just knowing that they just have to to watch out for the brace. But yes, all that would be going through their mind was just um, making sure that they're attentive for um, for, for bracing themselves. Um, start, they'll be starting to feel a bit disappointed. I would imagine before that um, the actual impact on the ground happens um, and before the parachutes yeah. open. But actually, it was all over very very quickly for them. Um, so the the, you, the parachutes open and you get this huge. Um, sort of swing from side to side and the side G um, is quite a shock actually and I, I knew what it was supposed to be but feeling that sort of that that swing from side to side um, and it's a jolt really um, to start with as well um, it's, it's quite, quite, a, quite a big thing and then when you actually land on the ground um, and you tend to tumble and bounce a bit um, and that because you're strapped into your seat so you don't move yeah. out of your seat that's mm. fine but your head isn't strapped into the back of your helmet so uh, I think typically astronauts tend to get bruised because the um, the microphones get jammed up between our faces ah. and the the front of the helmet, so you just get a bit of bruising in your lips. Um, and I, I think the same thing happened to the astronauts that landed. But you know, amazingly, that, that's pretty much all that happened. A bit battered, a bit bruised, but you know, they stood up, they're fine, they walked, um, and they're healthy. Not bad so, yeah. considering. Did you did you have that simulated that swinging? Um, no. Thing? no, you don't get the physical simulation. So that's that's the the the, the, the thing that you can't simulate mm. on Earth is the physical side. You've got the the centrifuge, I suppose, yeah. um, to. You know, to simulate G generally, but you don't get the increased G, then bang, stopped, um, and the yeah. noises and the vibrations and all of yeah. that as well. So, yeah, you can't actually simulate the actual... Um, they leave that as a surprise for you. Let's <laughs> <laughs> have something. Nice something. <laughs> so here's, a, here's one that's slightly different from my niece Poppy. She said, are you still making ice cream? And if so, what flavour? <laughs> I'd love to make ice cream. You know, I should have another go at that. Um, I love mint. I love mint ice cream. So yes, if I had another mint go, I'd make it. Yeah. But um, yes, if you're if you're a, a big ice cream factory, you tend not to do mint much unless you're only doing mint because mint gets everywhere. 
So yes, yeah, so mint tends to flavour other things. So yes, that's just a hint. If you have any mint chocolates at home, keep them away from your other chocolates because they do tend to make them all no flavoured a bit of mint. Okay, yeah. there we go. But yes, on. but Poppy, you no. Know, if I was, um, I'd love to know, Poppy, what you would like to um, to make if you were making ice cream. But chocolate's always a good favourite as well. I think so it's I think that's a nice, a nice one. <laughs> yes, but so yeah, I. I I've really enjoyed making ice cream because it's, <laughs> you know, when you think about how ice cream, what it is actually, um, so you've all this lovely mixture of things. Um, and when you freeze anything, when you freeze water, of course, you get ice. And when you freeze a, something that water is mixed in with, then the water crystals freeze. If you keep on churning it, we say in the ice cream parlance, so you keep on sort of yeah. turning it and turning it, then those crystals are small so that you don't taste them, they don't taste rough. Um, but it does mean then that the rest of the mixture has to freeze at a slightly lower temperature. So you keep on having to freeze at lower and lower temperatures the more that you're making your ice cream. So it's really interesting. Uh, I guess. Oh, wow. yeah, it's brilliant. That's, 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 yeah, that's where I've been going wrong with my ice creams. <laughs> there we go, there we go. When you were training for when you were training at Star City, what kind of proportion was there for Mir training or Soyuz training? Which did you have to train most for? So Soyuz training was um, was a lot of simulator work. So we learned because you have to learn about the spacecraft, uh, both Soyuz and the space station. And the space station is bigger. There's more to it. Um, but there's also more space. So they pack a lot of systems into Soyuz. Um, but then the actual sort of, if you like, the actual use of it, um, uh, of the actual, of the, of, the, of the infrastructure, probably we spent more time learning about Soyuz um, uh, because we we're actually operating that more. But then in terms of actually using the spacecraft for our work, I had to do a lot of work on, say, preparation for experiments, which were done on the space station, not on Soyuz. So it was probably in the end, 50-50 altogether, um, it's difficult to say, really, because there's, uh, um, say experiments only happened up there, um, but a lot of a lot of time is focused on on Soyuz, yes, which yeah. which is um, um, we're, we're, we're glad <laughs> we're glad we know how it works. Were, were you a little bit annoyed when Mike Fole crashed your beloved Mir? <laughs> Can't say that. <laughs> no, it wasn't Mike's fault. <laughs> no, yeah, but uh, but yes, it's um that was yeah because that was a bit a big uh, a big concern that how the, astro the astronauts the cosmonauts seem to be being pushed by mission control to um to accept a docking when they really couldn't see how it was going to work and mm. um, see both physically and also mm. understand is um they they just they just had no control on of that docking so i think mission control learned a lesson there mm. they can't just will something to happen if the cosmonauts are saying we 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 cannot control this thing um then then you don't take chances with that um but yeah it's um yeah uh, it was a it was a, a sort of a tough time i think the soviet union was going through an interesting time then was russia by russia by then mm -hmm. um and working out how to manage its own operations in a different way than it happened with the soviet space agency mm. um, but yeah no mike i don't blame you at all <laughs> okay no hard feelings <laughs> yeah no i just i just it, i remember him he was saying that the uh Whenever he goes to, to, to Russia, that they all they're always blaming him, and it's just like, well, wasn't I the person that <laughs> saved it? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I know, so that's very funny. Well, yeah, so the typical sort of uh, Russian thing to try and sort of say that uh, it was unlucky because there were um, foreigners on board, or unlucky because there were women on board, or unlucky oh. for some other reason that it could <laughs> yeah. possibly be, yeah. be their own infrastructure. But yeah, I mean, it's space infrastructure. Russian stuff is very reliable. It's great. Um, really, not not a, not nothing to say wrong with it. It's um. 
of course, it's all human error in the end. It's how, how we operate it. I think, yeah, I think the, the Russian space agency learned, learned a lot from that. They did. It's not happened since. So I have a final question about where can our listeners go to get the best information about space? Obviously, there's the certain, you know, there's BBC, etc. But are there, is there anyone that you follow um, online or any websites that you can recommend that people can be inspired about learning more? So personally, apart from the British Interplanetary Society, of course, which is yeah. fabulous, of course. Um, uh, I use NASA and ESA a lot. Um, mm. Now, there's a lot of um, uh, what you could say propaganda, especially mm. with NASA. Um, so in that respect, um, ESA is quite good. Um, but you know, it use a combination. Um, and there's some other sort of just spacenews.com is really good as well. Mm. Um, so you get quite a lot of good detailed reporting on space news. And these are all personal recommendations. There's nothing, yeah. I'm, I'm nothing professional about this whatsoever. This is what I, what I happen to use. I would always recommend just, just the usual thing is you Google a variety of different sources um, and you make sure that um, that you're thinking through as you're reading it mm. um, so that you're, you're asking the right questions is this really a decent reporter um, have I got is it um, some some can I, can I rely on the information that's coming out of there yeah. but actually the, the the science journals if you're really interested in a particular area of of of, um, of science then NASA some of NASA's papers are very very good and they, they have everything is just released um, so it's all public public information it's all free and you can drill down and get some really really detailed information so if you're interested in the real detail um, definitely NASA's the do you, do you know where the, what the NASA journal website is is it can you get through just, via just NASA just NASA, the, just, yeah, NASA. just go straight in you just keep on going through just just, just doing NASA <laughs> searches and, yeah, yeah. and you can quite quickly get to some um, detailed scientific journals and read the whole paper yeah it's great yeah, there we I, go. There's yeah. your homework. Homework. And I, and I have to say, the, the one thing I've learned doing this podcast is if you go to a news article and find what people are saying about a subject and go to the original scientific paper, it's almost like they're what? what? They, they almost seem completely disconnected. They've managed to find the very bit, well, normally aliens, of course. <laughs> <laughs> but it, but it, it, yeah, I, I, I totally concur with that. That If you want to go back to the original source material, that's it's a fantastic it's like place. My Auntie Rini. Bless her. She gets uh, all of the papers in the morning, and she reads them all. And because I remember saying to her, "Why do you buy the Sun? That's terrible. Why do you buy that?" And she said, "Because I want to know what people are reading and what it means to to them." And so it's really interesting that she and she knows. So she she knows where all the stories come from and where the bias leads. And yeah. It's an interesting thing. Very good. I think many people in marketing, and I know certainly um, the managing director of Mars Confectionery when I was working there back in the 80s, um, he would read all the newspapers in just the same way as your auntie. Yeah. And, um, and yeah, for exactly that reason, you need to know how the information is being put across in different ways to different people. Right. Um, yeah, I just find it very interesting. I don't have time, sadly, to read all the, all, all of everything. Same. It's, um, <laughs> I mean, we'd, we'd all, it'd love it, wouldn't it? Yeah. Um, but, it's, um, but yes, when, when you actually see how one story can be so differently reported, mm. um, it does make you realise. And I think if you knowingly buy a newspaper with a certain slant, then, then that's fine. You understand that slant, mm. um, and it might be pandering towards your own um, political beliefs, but, um, but as long as you understand that, that's okay. Yeah. Um, I think with where the danger is is where it's not obvious, mm. actually. I'd much mm. rather have something that's absolutely in my face. This is the slant we're coming from. This is the editorial mm. angle. 
um, yeah, and then I know I can filter it in my own mind. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, good to do, do do some research on that. Fantastic. That's really good advice. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you very much for coming on. The Thanks so much for podcasting. coming down. We've been wanting to do this for years, and so to make <laughs> yeah. it happen is a real pleasure. So thank you very much. Well, thank you. It's been my pleasure entirely. And um, and if people like would like me to come back, then I would be more than happy. Oh, we would well, love more than happy. We would to love that. that. <laughs> we would love that. Yeah, awesome. Thank well, you thank you very much. much. The Interplanetary Podcast is alive! Incredible, incredible stuff. Jamie, I've got some space facts for you. You know I want some. Do you know you want do you want some space facts? Hit me. There's been a pa- there was a paper. I I didn't I didn't see it when it came out at the time, but it relates to our story, icy moons, Europa and Enceladus. We we were arguing which one was the better one, right? Oh yeah. But but there's a paper by Manasvi Lingam and Abraham Loeb uh, okay. came out came out last May, and they were looking at uh, whether there was enough elements in the water, right? Uh, bioessential elements, and the paper's called "Is Extraterrestrial Life Suppressed on Subsurface Ocean Worlds Due to the Paucity of Bioessential Elements?" Sounds like my kind of paper. The conclusion is that actually it's looking not that great in terms of uh, the way that phosphorus and molybdenum in particular, phosphorus for sub-ocean worlds where they're sort of looking at how the phosphorus comes in, the inflow known as the source and the outflow known as the sink of that particular um, element and whether there's going to be enough of it. So they've been studying it and trying to work out whether you were going to have a a good enough environment for complicated life to form. Well, that's a shame to hear, but yeah, we still can't surely know enough yet to completely rule it out. Yeah, it doesn't. It doesn't rule out life at all. In fact, all it's saying is maybe if there was life, it will be this life called oligotrophic. So, oligotrophic is an organism that that metabolizes really, really slowly and uh, they have a very low population density. So that that might be a problem if you land on Enceladus and you're trying to look for this life and it's really sparse and uh, you just don't find it the first time and just think you haven't found it when it's there. So it, it's worth so it's worth knowing these things because at least you're thinking, oh, um, that's not the bo- so that's not the end there anyway. Yeah, you're going to just have to look. You're going to have to look harder. And they're saying this this shouldn't be construed as grounds for ruling out future missions to the subsurface world. Definitely not. They just need one of those radars like the Predator had, the heat-seeking ones. That's it. They say that all they're doing is offering a hypothesis that is falsifiable and testable, that therefore it's actually, if anything, encouraging us to go to uh, Enceladus and Europa. Well, so, well, well, let me ask you this, Matt. Which one would be better? Which one would be better? This is where you get the points, Jamie. Yes. A little bit jealous. So this is how they finish the report. Insofar the availability of phosphorus is concerned, they recommend that Europa ought to be assigned a higher priority compared to Enceladus. Back of the net. That is is a goal for Team Europa. Get in. Well, I love that. Matt, where can I read that paper? But I'll put a link in the show notes. It's a really, 
It's a it's an interesting paper, and um, yeah, very very pertinent. It also talks about uh, the lack of molybdenum, perhaps, in the Venus atmosphere that might mean that you won't find biological life in the Venus atmosphere. Oh, like some like some propose. Well, I for one love that, and I'm going to read that paper. So mm-hmm. here's the biggest question of the week, Matt. Mm-hmm. If you like the interplanetary podcast. Is there anywhere you can go to get more information? You can go to interplanetary.org.uk. That's interplanetary.org.uk. And now you can listen to us on Spotify. What? We're on Spotify. We are on Spotify. We are on Spotify. Not just our playlist, but the podcast itself. Bloody hell. So, yeah, that's cool, isn't it? I I don't know, it just happened. (laughs) Well, we'd like to thank Spotify for supporting us. Um, They're not paying us, don't worry. And I would love to invite you to maybe share a link with a loved one. Open them up to the joys of space. And don't forget, we still have the competition running. We've had some letters from listeners uh, trying to win the Interplanetary Podcast Mug, which I shall make a special edition of now because, um, uh, for example, Paul Hilton uh, sent in an email with loads of stuff about Luna One. But unfortunately, the picture that he found was Mistilas Gineshifs of the mountain station of the main astronomical observatory of the Academy of Science in the USSR. That's not right. Not Morris Allen. So we're Mo- still what we're, waiting. Yeah, we're looking. So we're looking. So that what we're looking for is the press photograph that was stamped the Kemsley newspaper. Here's and the thing, was, Matt. Yeah, I think that this photo, just mm. like life on Europa, is there. It's, it's just going to take some time. Really, yeah, it's really, it's it's really needle in sparse. a haystack. You <laughs> yeah. can do it, people. Though I believe in you. Yeah, so look out for it. It's Kemsley newspaper, January fifteenth, January nineteen fifty nine. A picture, a photograph by Morris Allen of the Luna One sodium gas cloud. There so, we go. So listen, yeah. before we leave you, we would like to once again thank our wonderful guest Helen Sharman, the one and only. Um, and hopefully you enjoyed that, and we can do another one soon. We got an amazing. We got like two or three more amazing guests coming up, haven't we? Oh, we, we actually have. It's going to be a good year. But Matt, if you wanted to support us in any way, mm. because we don't have adverts on our show, how can you do it? You can go to patreon.com forward slash interplanetary or go from the link from interplanetary.org.uk. It's all in the show notes, Jamie. It's all dans le note de la show. Check it out. We. Oui. Well, have a good weekend, everyone. And don't forget, we're not alone. Or maybe we are. There's there's another paper that suggests that we are. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. <laughs> I'll put a link to that as well in the show notes. Bye-bye, Spodcats. Goodbye. Goodbye.